Well, hello there, listeners. Today we have an absolutely incredible episode for you with the beautiful, the creative, the brave and talented, well-spoken and articulate Michelle McQuaid. And in this episode, we talk a lot about the full spectrum of the human experience and why embracing that full spectrum is an essential component of cultivating well-being for us all. Because at the end of the day, part of the human experience is struggle and suffering. And sometimes those things are a gateway into greater depths of our own potential. But I would be remiss if today, as I record this intro, I didn't take a moment and consider with you that for the last four days, the world has watched as the leader of a major world power, Russia, threatened its neighbor in Ukraine and invaded. It is impossible to fathom what the people of Ukraine are enduring right now as someone who has lived in a relative safety and peace as an American all of my life. And it is a challenge to each of us to find resilience and peace of mind. And on one hand, I'm torn because having that resilience and peace of mind feels unfair to people who didn't choose their circumstance. And on the other hand, I am responsible to myself and those who rely on me to endure. And over the last week, I've had conversations with many clients who are coming out the other side of some really acute struggles of their own and starting to put down the stress, tension, anxiety that they've been carrying for on and off for two years and what it means to come out of acute stress and into cultivating the next stage, the next phase, the next whatever in their lives, in our lives. And I believe that in these moments where we transition from acute tension and challenge toward opportunity, that is when we build our resources. That is when we heal what has been hurt and then move toward the work of Barbara Fredrickson has just popped into my mind. We, we broaden our horizons and build our resources. And I think it's important to recognize that all of these tools, all these positive psychology tools we talk about, they change our cognition. They literally shift our neurophysiology so that we can experience the world differently, so that we can be open to new possibilities and creative solutions. Ukraine, the people of Ukraine will need the rest of us to support them, to back them, to show them that we are with them. And the people that rely on each of us 
will also need support. This is micro and macro. This is part of the human experience. Is standing together, holding up one another when they need that support, asking for support ourselves, and recognizing for each of us, what do, what do I need in this moment? What does my body need? What does my heart need? So that you, you can heal yourself and then show up for whomever else needs you. And I know this is wandering, and I recognize that some of this is a bit vague. But the foundational concept that then practices can be built upon is important. And Michelle and I are going to talk a bit about criticisms and positive psychology and toxic positivity and the whole, you know, yellow smiley face criticism, blah, 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 which is important. But being able to recognize what you need, where your stress tolerance is, and then to also be able to recognize, hey, I'm doing more better. I can handle more. Let me open up the aperture on my own capacity, on my own emotional spectrum, because I have cultivated that resilience. And I do think from my work with my clients and on myself that we can get stuck in the space of stress, of tension, and not recognize, oh, I can I can come out of that now and move into the space of expansion, collection, connection. And so for some of us who are in a period of relative safety at the moment, learning where that line is, learning to put down the tension so that we can expand then we have the opportunity to build new resources and show up to rebuild collectively, to extend to our neighbors, to our friends, to those we've had tension with these last few years and start building some bridges because we're going to need one another. We're going to need ourselves. We're going to need the warmth and energy that comes from communal positive experience from internal positive experience. Those are the things that build us the resilience to show up. My heart, my soul, my everything goes out to the people of Ukraine and anyone who has someone they love in Ukraine which for those of us who value the ideals of freedom and the spirit of well-being for all, on some level, we all have someone we love in Ukraine. I hope that you, dear listener, are safe and well, and that you are caring for yourself through whatever comes next, and that you are also making time and space and energy to cultivate well-being in your life, whatever that means for you. All right. After that 
wandering ramble. <laughs> Michelle McQuaid, coming on better than fine. Uh, let's get to it. Fitness, wellness, well-being, relationships, our own minds, building a life that works for each of us, and of course, the care of the body that we live those lives in. Welcome to Better Than Fine. This is a podcast about living a life above zero, you know, one that's better than fine. And it's for those people who are looking to explore themselves, one another, and the lessons of the world around us. And we do that by exploring the intersection of traditional wisdom and modern science. And I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. I'm an expert in wellness and well-being with nearly a decade in the fitness industry. I've got a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, which is the scientific study of well-being. But really, I've spent my adult life exploring the human condition, looking for leverage points that I can use to unstick others along their journey. And this podcast is one of those unsticking tools. So let's get to it. My guest today is Michelle McQuaid. She got, like many of our guests, she's in the Mapley, a master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She also has a PhD where she focused on creative positive change, working with Professor David Cooper Ryder. Uh, and she's had, uh, let's see, an honorary fellow at the Melbourne University's Graduate School of Education. She blogs for Psychology Today. Her work's been at Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Forbes. We got a lot of big, Hit her names here, Michelle. Feeling myself get a little flustered here. Uh, and I love this quote that I stole off your website that uh, Martin Seligman, who's largely considered to be the founding father of the Grand Poobah of positive psychology, says that Michelle is one of the world's leaders in designing and implementing positive psychology interventions in workplaces. I feel like is kind of having the positive psychology pope be like, you're you're a cardinal now. <laughs> the anointment. <laughs> the cardinal of work. Um, so Michelle, welcome to Better Than Fine. Thanks, darling. An absolute honor to have you. Uh, and I want to kick off from another little quote from your website, because I feel like this is a place that a lot of people could resonate right now, listeners to the show, um, which is in your bio, you have this quote. So while my life came to look great on paper, I was a stressed out mess who couldn't keep up with the life I had created. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one slice of this audience is high achievers. In the back of my head, I call them adult Lisa Simpson. Like we're the grown up Lisa <laughs> sure, Simpsons yeah. of the world. Um, and we've built these lives. And then you have this feeling that you encapsulate so well. And so I'd love yeah. for you to, to speak to that moment and to also speak yeah. where you've come from that moment, because sure. hope is a powerful tool. <laughs> It is indeed, as Let's we know. Let's start there. Um, I love your uh, comparison of that to the Lisa Simpson, you know, kind of within um, many of us, particularly those of us who are high performers. And, you know, I think like lots of us who grow up in that mindset, I thought my job was to tick all the boxes, you know, on the piece of paper. Good job, enough money to do the things I wanted to do, uh, good relationships, good health, look after my body. Um, I had started a family. My um, eldest son uh, at the time was about uh, four years old. On paper, it looked like I had it all. And I was about 32 years old. I was living in New York. The accent's Australian, so New York was a big deal. It was the city of my dreams that I 
wanted to be in. I was in this big global brand job for one of the world's largest firms. Um, I often travel sort of four days a week in and out of different countries and come home. My husband was staying at home with our son at that time and I'd have Fridays, Saturday, Sundays off from travel. I did a condensed work week. And so really like you couldn't have constructed a much better life for me personally. It was everything I had ever hoped that life might have been. And so I really couldn't figure out what was wrong about six months into that role in New York where I was finding myself struggling to get out of bed. Each morning was a battle with the snooze button on the alarm clock to drag my ass out and to get to where I needed to be. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I, I went and had a physical. There was nothing wrong physically with me. You know, I went and talked to a psychologist. There was nothing wrong emotionally with me. I wasn't depressed or anything like that. I was just exhausted from trying to keep up with the lives that we've created, um, that I had created. And I think many of us do, to your point, right? And uh, I just, I couldn't find a way out of it. I was like, I just need to get more grateful. Yep, I just need to pull up my socks <laughs> and get on with it. Like, come on, girl. You know? yeah. Where's your gratitude? Um, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, little things would work maybe for a couple of days and then I'd find myself back hitting that snooze button um, again and again. And it wasn't until one night I was end of a long day, slumped over the takeaway container on the couch and watching the John Stewart show, which used to still be on in those days. <laughs> and John was interviewing this Harvard professor, Dr. Telbin Shahar, about why his course had become the most popular on campus. And it was the first time, of course, other than economics had been the most popular on campus at Harvard. And the course he was teaching was positive psychology. And I remember literally kind of going from that slump state to upright on the couch going, what is this? there's a science to happiness? Why has nobody told me this before? I'm like, that would be useful information to have, surely. Um, and it really just, it was the first I'd heard that, that such a thing even existed. And so the next morning I was straight to Barnes & Noble and I bought Tal's book and devoured it in the day. Um, Tal's work led me to Marty Seligman's work. Yep. And then I couldn't stop talking about it, like to friends. About, I'm like, do you know there's a science of <laughs> was I the only one? <laughs> exactly. Like, what, what did my parents not tell me? <laughs> and so um, it was really only... I think to shut me up because I was sick of hearing me talk about it that one of my friends said you should see if there's a master's program in that and so sure enough there was and that was how I came to do the master's of applied positive psychology I think the one piece though in opening up all that treasure box of the science even when I went to do the master's of pos psych I thought I was coming to learn how to be happier that was I wanted to be happier and I wanted to enjoy the life I created and I wanted to have the energy to keep up with it and it was probably about three quarters of the way through that program that I realised what I was getting was something much richer than just happiness. And what I was getting was this um, body of knowledge and these tools and social support from my classmates, but also then from other people in my life that I was starting to talk about more of those things with, to be able to navigate the ups and downs that we all have in life, right? And to know that when things were good, rather than worrying about the bottom falling out, that foreboding joy that Professor Brene Brown talks about, 
I could just savor and enjoy it and learn from those moments about how to keep, um, how to make more of them. And when I was down on my knees and wondering if I'd ever get back up, I could have a degree of confidence. I would get back up. You know, I had again the things I needed to start finding my way out of that. But rather than trying to do so in a blind panic of get me out of here, you know, I'm going down. <laughs> it was more a place of going, okay, this this hurts, it sucks, but there's also learning and growth here. And I'd rather get that learning and growth and not be back for this lesson again, <laughs> rather than just trying to claw my way out or deny that it's happening or numb myself from the pain of it. And that probably, you know, understanding how to navigate and feeling confident that I can, those highs and lows of life, that for me was the real gift out of all the things that we studied. I, I want to highlight that especially, and I'm so glad that you brought it to there because one thing that I deeply struggle with in the fitness industry is the toxic positivity of kind of the rah-rah push harder you can get through. You don't know what you're capable of. And it's like, no, sometimes people just need like a cookie and a nap. Yeah. Like, That's okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay to have a cookie and a nap. Yeah. Like that doesn't, yeah. you know, you're not blowing your macros or whatever. Mm-hmm. And to that you found that in a program that is about a science that is poo-pooed as the science of yellow smiley yeah. faces, which of yeah. course, those of us who are in it know that yeah. it's not. And hopefully yeah. listeners to this show know that it's not. But I think that it's such a valuable thing in this moment where so many people are struggling yeah. to be able to say like, hey, struggle's part of the process. Just because you're struggling right now, you're not always going to struggle. You haven't always been struggling and the struggle is okay. Yeah. And not even just okay, Darlene, but normal yeah. and healthy. Yeah. <laughs> like if you were just thriving all the time or happy all the time, I'd be a little bit worried about your well-being. Yeah, there's <laughs> like, something else going are you on here. Disconnected from reality. Do you just not feel safe to talk about it? And I think, you know, I was fortunate doing research with uh, Dr. Peggy Kern over the last few years based on Professor Martin Seligman's perma theory of well-being and we've done large population studies multiple times um, in the US in Australia in Canada we're about to do one in Hong Kong and a few other places as well but we see over and over again that it is possible to be living well despite struggle and the outcomes you get in life in work for your well-being statistically are no different than people who tell us they're consistently thriving a lot of the time. And certainly I think the last few years with the global pandemic, one of the things we've seen both at an individual, a team, a whole workplace, a whole community level of talking about well-being is if we can just normalize struggle as not just even normal, but a healthy, healthy. part of caring for our well-being. Looking after our well-being is going to have moments of struggle and moments of thriving. And that's completely okay. Hey, those moments of struggle, as you're pointing out so beautifully, are simply that opportunity to learn and grow to sometimes know we need a cookie and a nap on the way to the learning and growing. <laughs> and the more that we can make that okay to talk about, to not shame or isolate people or make them feel they're broken or defective in some way, it's probably the easiest and biggest gift we can give people to look after their well-being. Yeah, as you're saying that, and I'm thinking about it, like not just normal, but necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few weeks ago, we had Dan Tomasulo on the show, and he's, of course, at Columbia Mind Body Spirit Institute, and he was mm-hmm. referencing work. And of course, 
whose work is now escaping me. There's so many good names, but <laughs> I always get mad at myself when I can't think of who it is um, around the, the mechanism of depression leading to spirituality. And of course, I'm sure you know that spirituality, people who have some kind of spiritual relationship, whether it's a formal religion or just a belief system, tend to have greater well-being and tend to also be more resilient in the face of stress. But that depression is often part of the equation that leads you into that belief system. Absolutely. And so if we are running away from these negative emotional experiences or trying to detach from them or minimize them, are we then running away from a process that ultimately leads us toward self-transcendence and actualization? Scott Barry Coffin was just on the show. So I'm like yeah, throwing yeah. back to all these old episodes. Yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, I, I love this idea of like, not just, not just normal, but necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And healthy. Yeah, yeah. healthy. healthy. And I think, you know, even those periods where we're looking after our physical well-being and we feel like we need the cookie and the nap, you know, if we, I don't think we can consistently care for our physical, spiritual, emotional well-being if we're not tuned in to the things that our bodies are actually telling us on all of those fronts. And so, you know, I, you know, have a pretty good exercise routine, um, you know, each day throughout the week. But sometimes that exercise routine is today is a day when my body is telling me to slow it down, to not hit the treddy or hit the trail, but to actually, you know, hit the yoga mat. And it might just be pose of the child for you know half an hour and that's all I've got I've learned that it's more important for me to honor that than to push through that no matter what the cost because it's the moments where I push through it over and over again where I'll end up injured or my motivation gets broken down because again I can't keep up with the expectations that I've set myself and that's where we're far more likely to burn ourselves out in the process First, I love that you've picked up on this cookie and a nap analogy that I just- I'm all for a cookie and nap, mate. Yeah. I'm not against cookies and naps. Um, and I and obviously I'm all about the vitality piece. Mm. I want to shift gears a little though in this idea that, okay, so, so you found this body of evidence. Clearly it has had profound positive effect in your life's trajectory. But from there, a lot of what you do now is work on work. Mm -hmm. And can you just frame that for us? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so uh, for me, I'd, I'd grown up in both small and very large organisations. I'd started in little companies where we maybe had 10 people and then I'd gone to work in big global organisations like IBM and PricewaterhouseCoopers with, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. And part of my role was often jumping between different countries and looking at how people were doing in those countries. And it got me really curious as I got to see that across different cultures and different styles of leaderships around how did you bring out the best in people consistently at work? And so at the moment I was having that kind of personal crisis, I was also having some professional crisis in that what I was so sure worked, if you treated people like machines and you told them to do the right things and you use the right carrots and sticks to reward or punish them, surely they'd do what was required. <laughs> and what I saw as I jumped in and out of different cultures and leadership teams was, 
it rarely ever worked. You got compliance, but almost never commitment. And as soon as leaders' attention moved on to the next thing, people went back most often to behaving the way they were before. And so, you know, I'm scratching my head in my personal life going, this doesn't add up. And I'm scratching my head in my professional life going, this doesn't add up. And so from a professional front, when I started to understand there was this science to human flourishing and how we could bring out the best in people in different contexts, again, you know, in those very um, large, well-resourced organisations, these were not conversations we were having. And we had whole divisions of change management teams who were being paid to do this for other people in the world. I'm like, what are we missing here? So um, I had made the pitch to my work. I actually had moved back from New York to Australia and had asked my work to still let me go and study in Philadelphia to do the master's program. Um, and PricewaterhouseCoopers, I was working with at the time, were amazing and said, Sure, because we recognise too that we need this science. We don't have this um, capability within our organisation because this was very early on in the positive psychology journey. And so if you want to go and get it and bring it back for us, we're happy to invest in you to do it. And so I was very fortunate for uh, the first sort of three, four years during my studies and straight afterwards, PricewaterhouseCoopers said, you know, look, you know, here's a few hundred thousand people, see if any of this stuff works in a very challenging environment because these are auditors who are renowned for building their, you know, career success <laughs> on being negative and pessimistic mm -hmm. and pointing out what's wrong very loudly. So I'm like, if you can make it work there, you'll make it work anywhere. <laughs> and then with their blessings starting up just over a decade ago now, my own um, organisation, and we now work with workplaces all over the world doing this kind of work and taking the science in and finding ways to make it practical. I can't help but notice the difference between analysts and personal trainers, because honestly, having spent the last decade in the fitness industry, they're very good at telling you exactly what you're doing wrong <laughs> and then expecting that to be a positive outcome. Um, right. Well, and I think it's common, right? Most of us, I don't actually think, know how to motivate people well, unless you've had a really fantastic role model that just knew how to do that and you've emulated that. I think most of us grow up and our negativity bias, of course, as we know, makes us more inclined to look for what's not working and to feel that evolutionary pull to try and fix it. And so we're often not taught other tools to respond to motivation that might get commitment instead of just compliance. Well, I also think, I mean, you're, you're more of an expert on this than me, so I'll be curious of your thoughts. It's like when I think about my education in the fitness industry, so much of it was around selling the negative. The way that I get the person to yeah. buy the bigger package yeah. is point out to them all the things that they don't like about themselves and yeah. then they will commit to me. And then, yeah, I got to have the skills to pay the bills. But I, I think part of that equation, if we look at larger work too, mm -hmm. right? As high achievers, we're often Absolutely. the ones who are most productive then moved into leadership positions. And we're like, well, I was committed. How come you're not? Yeah. And so I think there's, there's multiple levels of fallacy in this where the people who are leading often are motivated by different things than the people yeah. that they are leading. Yeah. When I was first doing my master's studies, I was heading up the brand and marketing area for PricewaterhouseCoopers in Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, most of our advertising and marketing traditionally had been, you know, the sky is falling and we're here to save you. You know, that, that was how we got billings, right? And so when I was doing the master's of applied positive psychology and I was learning the importance about the questions that we ask and how when we ask questions that look for the true and the good and the possible 
possible. We create more opportunities for people to thrive and flourish together with uh, Professor David Cooper Ryder's work. And so I went back to PricewaterhouseCoopers and, and they, um, as they are in many parts of the world, are often lumped as what they call the big four. So they're sort of really big four firms like PricewaterhouseCoopers and Ernst & Young and KPMG and Deloitte, and they're all much the same. And when you look at brand assessments or customer surveys on them, that you can't split them, right? They're, you'd like one of them, they're all trusted, they're all big, they've all got the same problems. It's just a, a you know, same lot. Anyway, um, I said to my leaders at the time, I said, if you want differentiation, we need to go out with a message of hope rather than a message of doom. And this was like, <laughs> hope like no, we're going to go out with a message of hope in order to reposition ourselves as something different. And so we ran in Australia this big brand campaign with, you know, bus stops and radio advertising and billboards at the airport and ads in the newspaper and things like that um, and social media around first. Our first question was, what do you want to change? There was hot debate whether that was a negative or a positive question. Mm -hmm. um, and then what do you want to grow? And this was the first time that we'd really used hope theory as a way to sell our services. But we were very intentional in doing it because we also wanted to make sure then the conversations we had with clients came through from also that place that the appreciative inquiry work teaches us so beautifully about, well, when we think about this thing you wanna change or this area you wanna grow, what's working well? What are the strengths that we can build on? Um, you know, if we built on that consistently, what does success look like? Um, okay, if we know that that's the hope, then how might we get from here to there? What are the pathways that we wanna prioritize? And then lastly, what are the small actions we wanna start taking immediately? Now, now, whether you're selling fitness or, uh, you know, psychology or auditing, those same questions, right, work beautifully as a sales process and actually build from a place of commitment and supporting general well-being rather than undermining people in the process just in order to sell them something that we eventually hope will do them good, but we've destroyed their sense of confidence and self-efficacy often in the starting process that makes it pretty hard to sustain the change when things get hard. Beautifully and put. Just the end of the story, we yeah. did get brand differentiation as a result. So oh, in the independent studies for the first time, we actually stood apart because we were out with a message of hope rather than a message of fear and doom. Just beautifully put. Like I'm having this moment <laughs> of stutter. I know you also have hosted podcasts that you're like, oh, I got so into what you're yeah. saying. So that many I'm questions. Like, my, brain, <laughs> my brain is completely short-circuited because what I'm mostly thinking about from like a, a larger lens perspective is mm -hmm. when I look at whether I'm talking about social media content feeds or podcasts or the news or whatever way that information makes it to me. I live very rural. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I used to also live in New York City there for 12 years, my dream city. And then I was like, oh no, I, I want a time to go home. Um, <laughs> And now I have this like quiet, quiet, removed life. So a lot of my information comes in through these mm. sort of secondary pathways. And so much of that right now is framed mm. in this challenge thinking. Yeah. And I think we're seeing the payoff of that exploitation of negativity yeah. bias yeah. across the board yeah. in people's health outcomes, their mental health yeah. outcomes, their well-being outcomes, like pick a, pick yeah. a factor. Yeah. Yeah. And almost to the point that it seems like now when someone comes out with the message of hope and positive change and possibility, 
it gets interpreted as toxic positivity. And I just, that's, that's what's resonating. And I don't necessarily have a question there other mm -hmm. than like, what are, what are your thoughts and how does one yeah. who wants to be a positive voice in the space show up with authenticity there? I mean, I think calling something, labeling something as having toxic positivity to me is a cheap shot, right? Like mm. it's not doing the work to actually look behind what is the conversation that somebody is trying to support. So I definitely, you know, as we've talked about, I'm all for the fact that life and our well-being comprises moments of struggle and thriving. And to be all of one or the other is a very simplistic to me, not even narrow mind, it's lazy kind of way of living, right? It strips out the fact that life is complex and that we need the and uh, in our team, certainly, you know, one of our phrases most of, where's the and in this, you know? And it's not always that there's an and, sometimes we are in the either or category, but more times than not, there's an and. And so rather than just letting somebody label something that you're doing as, oh, it's toxic positivity, I would say, well, where's the and in that? Okay, there might be parts of it that are um, sitting in that realm of toxic positivity. Let's talk about that. Because I don't think that there's anybody that works in this space or is trying to support hope in the world that wants to be peddling toxic positivity, right? We know how dangerous that that can be. So, okay, there's toxic positivity in there. Let's talk about that and own it. But to brush everything that comes from a place of hope or grounded optimism or just compassion and kindness as toxic positivity to me is just a lazy insult it's like you know saying to somebody hey your head's big or you know like, I mean, come on you know we're not in primary school anymore we can do better than that when it comes to thoughtful conversation with each other yeah yeah is that all you got yeah, like, yeah, and, and I, but I do think you're right that certainly in many countries right now, there is a conversation and dialogue going on in a lot of public spheres that feeds off fear and anger, hate, uncertainty and division. And, you know, to me, that doesn't make that healthy either. That to me is toxic negativity. You know, again, I think there's a danger that we can label all of that conversation as just dismissing it as that. And I think that is also a disservice um, and a lazy way to deal with what are still some really important issues and opinions. And, you know, part of the reason we're seeing these two divides is the lack of willingness to sit in the complexity in the end and to actually listen to each other and have thoughtful conversations rather than rushing to judgment. I love um, uh, Dr. Nick Epley's um, research talks about the fact that, you know, our brain is wired for mind reading and most of us are way too confident of our mind reading abilities. <laughs> of each other than we should be <laughs> and that the only antidote to that is to get curious yeah. and so when I think about Amy Edmondson's research on psychological safety or uh, Professor Gervais Bush's research on the interpersonal mush that bogs down our relationships is my favorite psychology <laughs> term. That is mush. an actual construct um, is interpersonal mush. <laughs> interpersonal mush, yep, nice. I highly recommend his research. Um, but the antidote to all those things is curiosity, right? And so to me, it's that how do we get more curious 
um, about the opinions or the ideas or the conversations we can see happening around us and how do we step away from our brains kind of you know lazy untrained tendency that when we spot any sort source of threat we attack with judgment and that to me is not creating a world in which any of us are going to thrive consistently in. I can see with that framing why you'd be so drawn to appreciative inquiry, right? It's yeah, like definitely. positive curiosity, right? Like let's dive into this and look for the best in it. Yeah, and I think even more when you dive into the appreciative inquiry literature, and again, um, Gervais has some great papers around this, it's less even the positive curiosity and it's more the generativity. How do we see old things in new ways? And I love that Dr. Jackie Stavros talks about how do we do the flip? You know, how do we go from all that's wrong or all that we disagree with or all that we don't like and think about how do we see this in a different light? What's meaningful for these people with that? What might I have overlooked? What of it can I agree with? I remember interviewing um, Dr. Christopher Cuck, um, who has a beautiful book on uh, kindness and compassion. And he was saying, you know, one of the exercises they do in his team at the university is to listen every week to a podcast of someone you'd never agree with. Mm. And he said, we have to listen to that with curiosity <laughs> and compassion that this is someone who, you know, it takes a lot of energy to put your views out there in the world. This is someone who cares enough to want to share this perspective. Now, again, we might still walk away and not agree with it, but can we actually get curious about what's important to this person in it? I think one of the things that changed forever the way I think about conversation was David Cooper Ryder's observation that behind every cynic is an unexpressed hope. And so when I'm hearing different points of view that I might find really hard to imagine there's anything in there that I could agree with at all, it's a reminder for me that, hang on, this is, this is somebody's hopes. And if nothing else, I owe them the same respect that I would want for me, which is at least ask me what is the hope behind here and what motivates that and what outcome do I think this could have and what positive impact might it have? Because again, maybe there are things that I've missed um, that until we find some of that, and I like, again, Dave talks about not just common ground, but higher ground that we can share with each other. It's hard to build a way forward. We're just going to stay in these conversations of division, which I don't think are getting any of us to where we want to be. What I love about that idea is like this, this dip, digging in, looking for their unexpressed hope. It's, it's humanizing yeah. of a set of ideas and principles that maybe you disagree with, yeah. but the, the, the person, the consciousness, the being underneath that, that has all of the, all of the great spectrum of human emotion experience that any of us are working in, they're just coming to the table with a different viewpoint. Yeah. Right. And a and different experience, right? Yeah, a different yeah. lived experience from what, you know, is probably unimaginable to me. But, you know, we all share those same deep psychological needs to be seen, to be heard, to feel respected and valued. And so I'm okay to disagree 
but can we at least extend that for each other? Again, Christopher Cuck talks about in his research the fact that we tend to be wired with a compassion bias where we only extend compassion to people we see as part of our tribe. And so until we can find in those people who seem so different from us, um, perhaps in the things that they're saying or the opinions they have, the actions they're taking, until we can find some of that common humanity that you're talking to so beautifully, Darlene, compassion becomes an impossibility and again it does I'm not suggesting that I will agree with everything that that person says or even a lot of the things that they're doing but can I find the fact that we're human beings trying to do the best we can with what we have on any given day we we want to feel connected we want to feel valued we want to feel like we're making a contribution to something if we can just start there, then I can deal with the respectful disagreement. <laughs> but I think when we're trashing each other and calling each other names and not willing to at least sit down and get curious about each other, then I think we're missing out on opportunities around for the world we all want to live in. Oh, so beautifully put. Like the idea that these opportunities for what we're all trying to create, I always think of, and I don't know if this is universally true, but whenever I'm talking to a positive psychology practitioner, I run on the underlying assumption that we all are striving for like well-being as a human right. Like yeah. if we understand the equations around well-being, yeah. that that's what we're trying to build in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody who, I don't, I don't know that I've talked about this on the show before, but as somebody who lives rural, grew up poor on social, like public assistance programs and the first of my family to go to college, my grandfather didn't even have teeth by the time he was 19 and he, and I'm in the Albany area. So Barton Seligman grew up here. I'm pretty sure like in, um, one of Seligman's books, he talks about selling magazines around yeah. like yeah, the yeah. rural he had areas. the newspaper out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my family lived at one of the places he talks about skipping because oh, they definitely couldn't afford magazines. Yeah. So growing up in that space, there is a lot of contention and yeah. suffering and struggle yeah. in this yeah. environment. And yeah. it is often the population that well-being practitioners, in my opinion, are kind of looking over or looking yeah. past or looking away from because yeah so many of them foundationally disagree. You know, I'm talking about my own neighbors and my own family now with kind of what we're on about. But if we never try to find common humanity with them, we cannot find well-being for all. We are leaving out a swath of population that is unquestionably reacting from a place of struggle. And we can't sustain well-being for ourselves, right? Like yeah. well-being is not a solo adventure, as no. we see from all of the data. It's impacted by the communities in which we live and the people around us. And so, you know, even at the most selfish level, that if we want wellness for ourselves, we need to be willing to support wellness for others. And, you know, like you, I, you know, certainly grew up um, in Australia, first in a, a very impoverished family, then with a single mum on a teacher's salary, And then she got remarried when I was sort of in my teen years. And so there was a little bit of middle class time. I left home when I was 16 and supported myself. So back into, you know, a very impoverished um, stage of my life to then, you know, grow up into the opportunities that I've had. But it certainly wasn't easy. And I absolutely appreciate when we're talking about how do we sit with curiosity with people that we completely disagree with, you know, that that can sound naive and it can sound 
sound like, oh yeah, sure, it's easy to say that when you sit in a you know nice house in Toronto and you don't understand perhaps what some of these people are saying or doing, but that that is my family, you know, uh, much like yours. You know, I still have a brother who is battling with a crystal meth addiction. My sister died last year of a drug overdose um, after a stint in jail and things like that. So I'm not doing this from a, an ivory castle. I'm doing it from, like you, Darlene, very real world challenges with what the pain and the tensions and the differing opinions can be within yeah? just the people that I love every day. I think the other important piece in all of this is, again, we could look at Dr. Brene Brown's research on compassion. She suggests that the most compassionate people are also the most boundary people. And so I think, again, we can have curious and respectful conversations, and I'm going to say it again, still agree to disagree, still agree that, you know what, those behaviours for us as a society are not acceptable. You know, should my sister have gone to jail for dealing drugs? Absolutely, that was not acceptable behaviour that's going to support the well-being of our society. And so, again, I think with compassion and curiosity needs to also come healthy boundaries for the world that we want to create together and again I liken that back I love when Marty talks a bit about grounded optimism rather than just pie in the sky optimism right you don't want an optimistic pilot landing a plane on black ice <laughs> and I think here again compassionate curiosity with each other and respectful conversations needs to also come with knowing where our boundaries are for what is and isn't okay in the society in which we want to be safe and well together. I want to thank you. I'm going to take two seconds here and just thank you for that incredible vulnerability that you mm -hmm. just showed. Um, because I do think it's easy for people to idealize anyone in the space talking about building thriving and mm -hmm. the assumptions that are made about that person's human experience. And I always appreciate when anyone like yourself shows up that real because you're essentially saying I'm brave enough to keep talking about well-being and thriving and the human experience from an open heart when, you know, I too have suffered. I too have struggled. I too have worked hard to get yeah. here. Yeah. And that is invaluable. Um, and I just really appreciate your willingness to like talk to a stranger on the internet about that in a way that, you know, is going to be shared with other people. <laughs> It's a hard line, I have to say, in terms of when is it of service to share those parts of our story and when is it, when is it not, I guess, is, is the hard part. And I'm certainly still finding that line, but I appreciate that if it's of service, I'm always happy to share it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. Well, I think that's a worthwhile question to explore anyway, right? Is like, when are we, when are we sharing in a way that, is some, you know, hubris is the word that keeps yeah. popping up in my head, but I don't know if it's actually okay. what I mean. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we talk about sharing stuff on the internet, right? So often mm -hmm. now what we're seeing is this kind of narcissistic faux vulnerability <laughs> that muddies the water on what yeah. real vulnerability looks like. And so I just yeah. appreciate, I think the way we find that line is by dancing back and forth on that line and going, yeah, oh, there exactly. it was, whoops, yeah, went too far. Set place. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Um, 
And it, it, you know, I, I also just want to appreciate your willingness to share your time and your stories and your wisdom. Um, you oh, know, my you've, pleasure. you've been a, a force in this space and will continue to be. And, and I just really am honored to have you on the show. Oh, well, thank you for having us. And thank you for putting the show together again. I know how much it takes to keep putting a podcast in the world. And uh, certainly for me, it was my art and my heart. And listening to your episodes, I can hear the same for you. So um, thank, you. thank you for sharing your art and your heart out there with the rest of us to learn from and benefit from. Thank you. Thank you so much, <laughs> Michelle.